Well, poor Isaiah was going around naked when we left off last week, trying to warn King Hezekiah and the people of Judah that if they rely on Egypt instead of Yahweh, they will all end up naked and in chains as prisoners of Assyria. Judah is in a terrible spot. Assyria has already conquered Israel, Aram, the Philistines, virtually every other nation except Egypt. And Egypt has been a fickle, not reliable ally for Judah. And yet, being subject to Egypt seems better to the people of Judah than being taken captive by Assyria and scattered all across the known world. This is like your proverbial between a rock and a hard place, and there's some pretty big rocks. So despite Isaiah going naked, it sounds like King Hezekiah does indeed stop paying tribute to Assyria and over Isaiah's naked body allies Judah with Egypt Even though the chronicler doesn't really come out and say that in so many words, I think we can tell that that is what happens because of what happens next. About 14 years into Hezekiah's reign, the new king in Assyria is Sennacherib. He marches down to attack and take all the fortified cities in Judah. He makes camp about 30 miles south of Jerusalem in the fortified city of Lachish. Remember that name, Lachish. We're going to, and and look at how close it is to Jerusalem on the map. We're going to hear about Lachish again. It's one of their main fortresses. So here, there's an extensive description of this campaign in the Assyrian archaeological records, indicating that Sennacherib takes more than 200,000 prisoners and traps Hezekiah in Jerusalem, quote, like a bird in a cage, end quote. Egypt is apparently no help at all, again, so Hezekiah sends an urgent message to Sennacherib in Lachish, saying, I I have done wrong. Please withdraw and allow me to pay whatever price you might set. Of course, the price is extremely high, but Hezekiah scrambles to gather all the silver and gold he can find in the temple, in his royal treasuries. It's so bad that to come up with enough gold, he has to strip the gold off the doors and doorposts of the temple. Unfortunately, the king of Assyria takes the gold and silver and still makes plans to lay siege to Jerusalem. Sennacherib sends a large army to Jerusalem, headed by his supreme general, his chief executive officer, and his field commander. Hezekiah sends his own palace administrator, Eliakim, the royal secretary, Shevna, and another official named Joah out to meet them. The Assyrian field commander says, tell Hezekiah that the great king of Assyria says, what kind of strategy is this? You are depending on Egypt, but they are as undependable as a dry stick that breaks into splinters if you lean on it. And if you say you are depending on your God, Yahweh, you are a 
fool. You already tore down all the altars to him in all the high places. You told the people not to worship Yahweh, except here in Jerusalem. He will not protect you. My master, the king of Assyria, is far more powerful than you. And besides that, Yahweh himself told me to destroy you. Well, if you look closely in the picture, you'll see that all the people are lined up on top of the city walls, listening to every word. So King Hezekiah's officials ask the field commander to stop speaking Hebrew and switch to Aramaic so the people won't understand what he's saying. But the commander stands up and speaks directly to the people saying, you and your master will have to eat your own shit and drink your own piss. The great king of Assyria says, do not believe Hezekiah. He cannot deliver you. Do not let him fool you into placing your trust in Yahweh. Instead, make peace with us and come out. You will be allowed to live in your own homes until the time comes that we take you to another land, one better than this one, a land flowing with wine and honey, a land of bread and grain. Choose life, not death. Has any God of any nation ever been able to stand against the great king of Assyria? Was Samaria rescued? No. How then can Yahweh deliver you? When the people hear this, they are terrified. But Hezekiah orders them to remain silent. Hezekiah tears his clothes and goes directly to the temple. He sends word to Isaiah to pray that Yahweh has heard this blasphemy and will rise up to rebuke the Assyrians. God definitely has a history of rising up to defend his people, especially when God's own name and trustworthiness is involved. Isaiah sends word back to Hezekiah. This is what the Lord has to say. Do not fear. The king of Assyria has blasphemed me. Therefore, I am going to cause him to return suddenly to his own country, where he will be cut down by the sword. And sure enough, just then, Sennacherib receives word that the Cushite pharaoh, Tirhaka, is marching to Hezekiah's age. And Sennacherib says, hold that thought, Hezekiah, I'll be right back. And he goes to deal with Pharaoh. Hezekiah knows Sennacherib will be back. He takes Sennacherib's message to the temple and prays, oh God, you whose throne is in heaven, you alone are the Lord. See and hear what Sennacherib himself has said to insult you. We know that the gods the Assyrians have overthrown were not gods at all. They were not you, O Lord. Deliver us now, Lord, 
so that all the nations on earth may know that you alone are the living God. The Lord speaks to Isaiah, who tells Hezekiah, this is what Yahweh says to Sennacherib. Who is it you have insulted? Who is it you have mocked? You have lifted your eyes against the Holy One of Israel. Do you not know that I know every move you make? Do you not know that I hear your rage against me? Because of your self-assured and easy arrogance, I will put my hook in your nose. You will wear my bit in your mouth. I will make you return to your country. Then Isaiah gives Hezekiah a sign. Hezekiah, the sign is that you will have enough to eat this year and next year without sowing seed, even if you're under siege. And in the third year, sow and reap and plant and eat. There will be a root in Judah that bears fruit. A band of survivors will come out of Zion. That last bit is very end time sounding, isn't it? It's that whole root stump branch imagery. And the verse concludes with Isaiah's particular characteristic end time refrain. The zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. Isaiah uses this phrase several times to underscore various end time day of the Lord sorts of prophecies where the Lord shows up in power to deliver Israel. The Lord says, the king of Assyria will not enter this city. He will not shoot an arrow here. He will not build siege ramps. He will return by the way he came. I, the Lord, will defend this city and save it. I will do this for my sake and for the sake of David, my servant. And he does. That night, the angel of the Lord a phrase we've come to recognize as the Lord himself in bodily form, the angel of the Lord puts to death 125,000 men in the Assyrian camp. Shocked, King Sennacherib of Assyria withdraws. He returns to his capital city of Nineveh and eventually is assassinated by his own sons as he worships in the temple of his idol. So sometime later, Isaiah tells Hezekiah, you need to get your affairs in order because you're about to die. Of course, that scares Hezekiah to death, and he weeps bitterly and prays, Lord, haven't I done everything you told me to? I have loved you with my whole heart. And the Lord tells Isaiah, Go tell Hezekiah, I've heard his prayer, and I will not only continue to defend this city from the king of Assyria, but I will also add 15 years to his life. Isaiah goes to the king's bedside and gives him the good news and has a poultice of figs applied to the boil that is threatening the king's life. But still, Hezekiah is afraid, and he asks, what will be the sign that I will recover? And Isaiah says, oh, this is the sign the Lord offers. I will make the shadow of the sundial go backwards 10 steps or forward 10 steps, your choice. 
<laughs> and Hezekiah says, well, it's easy to make it go forward 10 steps. Make it go backward 10 steps. And so the shadow on Hezekiah's sundial moves backwards 10 steps that day. And Hezekiah knows he will recover from his illness. So there's a new empire rising to power. We're familiar, of course, with Assyria. But the kingdom of Babylon is beginning to flex its muscles. It's about to give Assyria a run for its money. But for now, Babylon is still part of the Assyrian empire. It's like a sub-kingdom. The crown prince of Babylon hears of Hezekiah's illness and sees an opportunity to make an ally. So he sends messengers to Hezekiah with gifts and well wishes. Hezekiah is so flattered that he shows them all around Jerusalem and the temple and the palace. And Isaiah comes and says, who were those guys and where did they come from? And Hezekiah says, oh, they were from a land far, far away from Babylon, in fact. And Isaiah says, what did they see in your palace? And Hezekiah says, oh, I showed them everything, literally all my treasures. And Isaiah says, you fool. He didn't actually say that. I think he must have bitten his tongue to keep it back, though. He, he tells Hezekiah, the Lord says there will come a time when everything you have shown them will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left. Even your descendants will be taken captive and will become eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. When Hezekiah hears this, does he put on sackcloth and ashes? Does he weep and wail and go to the temple to beseech the Lord? No, he does not. In his heart, he says, oh, okay, that, that'll happen to my descendants, but not to me. That works. And that's the last we hear of Hezekiah. He dies in 686 BCE, and his 12-year-old son Manasseh succeeds him. Hezekiah clearly has spent no time teaching Manasseh about Yahweh. And judging from that last insight into Hezekiah's heart, it's apparent that Hezekiah was all about Hezekiah. And young Manasseh is all about Manasseh as well. He has no use for Yahweh whatsoever. He was born after the terror of the Assyrians. He has no living memory of that existential threat. He has not seen Yahweh show up in power, and he may not even believe the stories about Yahweh that are surely told to him. Manasseh rebuilds the high places his father had destroyed. He sets up new altars to Baal and makes Asherah poles. He worships the sun and moon and stars. He puts altars to these things in the temple of the Lord. He consults the dead for guidance using sorcery and divination. He even sacrifices his own son in fire. And it says he sheds so much innocent blood that blood fills Jerusalem from end to end. And of course, the Lord sends prophets to him, warning that the Lord is going to bring such disaster on Judah and Jerusalem that people's ears will tingle when they hear it. Remember Amos's plumb line? 
Well, the Lord tells Manasseh he's about to stretch out over Jerusalem the same plumb line he used to find the house of Ahav wanting. The Lord says, I will turn Jerusalem upside down and wipe it out like a dirty dish. I will hand them over to their enemies. And so the Lord allows the Assyrians to take Manasseh prisoner to Babylon. The notes in my NIV study Bible say that this may not have been due to an outright attack on Jerusalem. We don't really have a record of an attack at this point, but it might have been more of an arrest of Manasseh for possibly participating in an attempted coup against the Assyrian king Ashurbanipal, the last great king of Assyria. And this kind of makes sense. Um, you know, Babylon's still part of Assyria. But one way or another, for whatever reason, Manasseh, after he's, is, is, after he's taken prisoner and taken to Babylon, he's eventually allowed to return. And the reason given for his return is that while Manasseh is a prisoner, he humbles himself before God. The phrase in the NIV is, he quote, he humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers, end quote. And the Lord hears his cry and is moved and restores Manasseh to his kingdom in Judah. Well, that alone is pretty miraculous. I mean, generally in this culture, if you're taken captive and exiled, you never return. But Manasseh returns. And he's learned his lesson. He is devoted to Yahweh from that point forward. He pulls down all the idols and restores the temple and starts temple sacrifices up again. And he also builds up fortifications around Jerusalem and stations military commanders in all the fortified cities. Smart move. Manasseh reigns a long time, 55 years in all before he dies and his son Ammon becomes king. We don't know much about Ammon, just that he is evil like his father had been in the beginning. And he ends up being assassinated by his own officials at the age of 24. So we're to the end of Isaiah's lifetime too. Jewish legend is that he was sawn in half during Manasseh's reign. We don't really know for sure. Manasseh um, has long been forgotten in um, the annals of history, but Isaiah lives on in, in his stunning prophetic poetry that is preserved in the Bible. There is more in Isaiah that pertains to the last days of Judah and, we'll, and beyond even, and we'll pick those parts up when we get there. Um, and there's honestly way more in Isaiah than we can cover in an overview like this. Isaiah needs a deep dive on it all on its own. But I do want to show you some of the most famous passages. In particular, it's from Isaiah that we have much of what we know about the coming Messiah and the end times. And much of this is in four sections that have come to be known as the servant songs. The first servant song is in Isaiah 42. Here is my servant in whom I am well pleased. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice. 
but he will not break those that are bruised, nor snuff out those that are barely smoldering. I, the Lord, have called you, and I will hold your hand. I will make you a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles, to open the eyes that are blind and set free those who are imprisoned in darkness. Isaiah repeats this part again in chapter 61, and it becomes the text that Jesus reads in the synagogue as his mission statement and his calling when he begins his ministry. Jesus says the Lord's spirit is upon him to do these things. The next words in Isaiah are, I am the Lord. Remember to go through your Bible and circle every time this phrase appears. If you've circled it, you would have seen it in your reading. This exact phrase underscores particularly important statements by the Lord. This one about um, the servant being a light for all people to open eyes that are blind, set free those that are in darkness. This is one of those I am the Lord statements. There's several in Isaiah. The second servant song is in the first part of chapter 49. We're going to look at that in our breakout groups because it is consistently taken out of context. The third servant song is in chapter 50. The Lord wakes me up to talk to me. I have let people beat me and make fun of me. The Lord vindicates me. Who then can accuse me? The Lord is my helper. Who can condemn me? So this servant song could apply to either Jesus or to Isaiah himself, right? And you should also be aware that for the Jews, many of the passages we see as applying to Jesus are in their eyes meant as prophecies about Israel itself. They sort the prophecies between the ones about Israel itself and the ones about the coming Messiah. And this is the nature of prophecy. It only gives us the shape of things. It tells us the spiritual reality, not necessarily what things will look like physically. So there can be many ideas or interpretations of what a given prophecy might mean. The last servant song begins in chapter 5213 and runs through chapter 5312. My servant will be marred and disfigured beyond recognition as a human, and yet he will be lifted up and exalted by kings. That definitely sounds like Jesus, right? He will, when he comes again, be exalted for sure. And there's, there's a weird kind of quote out of context in the New Testament that, said, that refers to Jesus' crucifixion as Jesus being lifted up. So it's just, you know, this is a really important passage. He grew up, this is, he's talking about the servant again. He grew up before the Lord like a tender shoot. Ah, there's some of that end time stump root branch language. He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, despised, someone people hid their faces from. I find that Change intense, very interesting here. He was a man of sorrows. It goes from my servant will be, he will be, he grew up, he was. 
In Hebrew, this doesn't necessarily indicate the past, but indicates an action that is completed. This passage is a great example of our pretzel time, moving between past, present, and future fluidly. I think, especially in prophecy, we see that when a word leaves the mouth of the Lord, it is done, completed, and perfect, even though the physical events may not have happened yet. The servant, he took on our sickness and our sorrow. What a beautiful way to speak of how Jesus became fully human. He took on our sickness and our sorrow. We saw him as if he were punished by God, struck down. Now that's an interesting thought. Many Christians do see Jesus that way in the sense of Jesus being a sacrifice on our behalf. And this is indeed the root of that theology, as you'll see in the next several verses. He was pierced for our transgressions. The word transgression in Hebrew means rebellion or a breach of trust, literally our unfaithfulness to the God who loves us. He was crushed for our iniquities. We like sheep have gone astray. The Lord has laid on him all our iniquities. Now that is an obvious reference back to the sacrificial system, specifically the day of Yom Kippur, where every year the sins of the community are laid on the head of a scapegoat who carries them into the wilderness far, far away. Yet he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. This like totally reflects what happens to Jesus in the New Testament. It's, I think it speaks to the role the religious leaders and the Romans played in Jesus' crucifixion. There's a sense that Jesus was blamed in every possible way for every evil. He was judged by men and found wanting. And even though the Lord was pleased to crush him and make him a guilt offering, yet even still, he will see life. He will see his seed. I will give him an inheritance among the great. So this is, you know, Christians take this whole passage as being um, a, a picture of the life, death, crucifixion, resurrection. Of Jesus. But notice how the voice in this passage, passage switches from the third person, the Lord has laid on him, the Lord was pleased to, to first person, I. I will give him an inheritance among the great. This kind of change in perspective of point of view is also typical of the fluidity of prophecy. So don't let it confuse you. Let it flow. Let, let prophecy flow. Um, try to receive the impressions without getting tangled up in the specifics of the words. So, wow, there's so much more like that in Isaiah. I hope you're, you know, reading and exploring in the book of Isaiah as we go along. I'll, as we go, uh, you'll, I'll be giving you big chunks of passages, chapters to read, which obviously you don't have to read to prepare for the class. But if um, I'm trying to give you big 
um, chunks of Isaiah that relate to the kinds of things we're talking about in, in class. And then all I can hope to give you during class is just a good feel for it. Um, we're going to look at the second servant song, the one in Isaiah 49, in our breakout groups today. It's a very interesting passage of prophecy that is routinely taken out of context. This was this was kind of interesting, wasn't it? <laughs> we would like to first apologize to our group because when I said I would read number four, Erica very immediately exited us from the group. So sorry to our group members. <laughs> I, I thought I was getting rid of the message. <laughs> it, was not in, it was not intentional. All righty. So um, the, the questions give you kind of a little blurb there at the top for each of the four servant songs. And we're, we're, we're focusing mainly on number two. And um, in the servant songs in general, who is the servant or who could the servant be? There's lots of possibilities. What'd you come up with? Israel was our number one choice. Israel is one of the possibilities and it, you're number one. Huh? What, are, what, are, what are some yeah. of the other choices? Well, we also talk about Jesus. Jesus. That, that, that there are some things that do seem to apply to the Messiah. Right, right. What are some other choices? We thought it might be Isaiah. It could be Isaiah. Good, good thinking. And that's another possibility. And there's there's at least one more. Oh, well, we missed that. Ooh. <laughs> I think Ms. Barb earlier has said maybe Jacob, like in another context of uh, another question. So I don't know. If that's yeah, well, Jacob is synonymous with Israel in the Bible. That is the, uh, Jacob. That Israel is his other name. He was he started out being named Jacob. He the the Lord renamed him Israel. So there, those are interchangeable. Could there be a distinction between Israel as a nation and the Israelites? The there people? could be. There absolutely could be. Although, um, I because certainly. Um, and I want to talk about this in a couple of weeks. There's certainly, you know, some layers of complexity between who we are as individuals and who we are as a nation, you know, um, and what that means. So I'll just tell you who I think the fourth one could be. And the fourth one could be, you have to put on your non-Christian glasses. It could be the Messiah the Jews are waiting for. Okay. So they, they do believe in a Messiah. They just don't think Jesus was it. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. So with that in mind, um, we want to look at the particular servant song in the first part of Isaiah 49 that says, before I was born, the Lord called me. Um, he spoke my name while I was still in the womb. So if we take our three top contenders, we're going to leave Jewish Messiah off the table for now because we, you know, that's just an out there possibility. So if, if it's Isaiah, who's, who's the womb? His mother. His mother, right? If it's Jesus, who's the womb? Mary. Mary. And if it's Israel, who's the womb? Sarah. Ah, that's the beginning of the nation. The, and, and so so if it's if it's physically Jacob, like Jacob the person, 
um, the womb would be Sarah. But I don't think that Jacob, the physical person, is who is in view here. I think it's Jacob as the name of Israel. So if Israel, the nation, is the servant. And Woody, you guys said it was your first pick. Who is the womb? Yeah, we didn't figure that one out. Um, well, throw out to my I'm, I'm guessing Yahweh. Yahweh. Would it be Yahweh? <laughs> yes. It would be the mind of God, right? <laughs> it would be Israel conceived in the mind of God, which was done like way, 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 way long ago, right? I mean, this whole story, it's taken us forever. It took God a lot longer to get through all of this with these people. <laughs> So, yeah, so what if the womb is the mind of God? Okay. So then we also uh, had that thing a week or so ago where the the baby was the sign, not the promise. Yeah. And they named him something like war and destruction. Yes, exactly. Or God saves. That's right. Be, depending on the people's choice, you know, which way they yeah. went right so that kind of reminded that whole thing reminded me of that talk to me more about that well now you're (laughs) i just had that what the thought (laughs) well it makes sense that that we that how these prophecies work out in particular hinges to a large degree on how we were how we respond to them right? That's, Mm -hmm. that's what Renee's pulling out here. And that's why we may have trouble pinning down who exactly is in view in these prophecies, because the answer may depend on our response as a people to God. Do you see, see how that works with prophecy? Is it possible that in prophecies like this, there could be more than one reference from a human history perspective. Meaning? Meaning like so a, a big chunk of this, we were kind of going through and looking at these passages and saying, well, this looks more like Israel. And well, this, you know, seems to be talking about Jesus, you know, and many of us have been taught that that's exactly what they're talking about. And, and I'm wondering, is it possible that these prophecies, you know, being prophecies, which are murky, um, could be talking about Israel and the Messiah? And specifically Jesus for us Christians who believe that Jesus was the Messiah, the promised Messiah? Okay. Okay. Um, in my study Bible, one of the things it said was, you know, so this is not my idea. Anyway, that first it was um, applying to and referring to Israel during their suffering. And then it was being culminated and embodied in Jesus, the Messiah. Hmm. So that's the both. So what, what exactly was being embodied in Jesus in that particular view from that particular view? Um, the, the suffering perhaps. Yeah. Because no, no. As he you, was as, suffering because he was embodying a persona as something. What was he embodying? Yes. Yeah. And, right. uh, and, and it's like Marlene said, I mean, 
practically, I think every Bible study I've ever done says the suffering servant is Jesus in all of these passages. So, and so that's why, that's one of the reasons I was led to Israel because you said it's often taken out of context. I was like, aha. (laughs) So the question is, is it, is it possible that Jesus is embodying Israel? Mm. Yeah. So, so here to take it to a broader context, because it also talks about, you know, being a blessing to the Gentiles. Um, is it possible that, that this pro I mean, is this prophecy specifically to the Jews or could it be that Jesus was embodying, you know, which is more the Christian interpretation, all of humanity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, being bruised for our transgressions and all of that stuff wouldn't just apply to the Jews based on our, our you know, traditional, many of us, the churches we grew up in with this, this view that Jesus died for all of our sins collectively. That's not just the Jews. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and that's, this is exactly the, the, the lens that I'm trying to help you all see that you've been taught through. Okay. And I'm wanting you to see what the prophecies actually say in their context. So we've, as Christians have always, as you said, rightly, Marlene, been taught, this is talking about Jesus. And yet when we look at those prophecies, certainly, you know, we see the outworking and the parallels with Jesus. So I'm all, I'm all there. This is talking about Jesus, but that's not what it says. It says what Woody said. It says it's talking about Israel. So somehow we have to reconcile those two things if we're going to be honest, right? And I'm open to suggestions. Go ahead. Well, Jesus came to show people the way, how to be, how to act, how to to please God. And in doing so, he was a servant to everybody he met. Mm -hmm. So Israel was supposed to be showing the nations around or whatever that how you're supposed to be so you're supposed to be a servant and israel should have been a servant to begin with but they missed it bingo renee israel was always called to be a nation of priests and from I have no beginning. idea where that idea came from. It just popped <laughs> that, in my head. But that's right. I be, you know, and that's, I hope that those ideas, that's, to me, that's how the Holy Spirit works in dealing with questions and with prophecy and in conversations with people. It's like I do all this work and all this study like you guys are doing. And when the question comes up, I have to leave it to the Holy Spirit to bring up what it is that I need to remember, because there's no way I can remember all this from an intellectual point of view. It has to have seeped into my soul and my understanding, but Israel from the beginning, and I was called to be 
in the promises of Abraham, if you go back into the Genesis chapters 12 through 17 and reread them, you will see that they were specifically as a nation called to be a blessing to the other nations, a a nation of priests. So it makes what it makes perfect sense to me in that context that Jesus would embody Israel, that Jesus' whole ministry was to show this is what Israel is supposed to be for everybody. Marlene. Um, So again, going back to what, you know, at least I was taught growing up, a lot of times, even that that promise that Israel was to be a, a blessing to the nations was always put in the context of that's because Jesus comes from this line. Right. Um, but then looking at the history of Israel, um, you know, which was sporadic in terms <laughs> of its being a blessing to the nations. Um, but but looking down the long road you know, to, to Jesus, as you said, as the embodiment of God's intention of what Israel was to be. Um, Jesus was looking for the right words, like the ultimate prophet to Israel saying again, this is what God is calling you to be, you know, because because especially the religious leaders in Jesus' day had gotten so caught up in the minutia of obeying the law. And even Paul talks about that, that, that they, they, they missed the forest for the trees. And Jesus and Jesus' followers were pointing to, now this is what God wanted us to be all along. Yes. Was this, this blessing and to show what God wants with us humans and jesus was sort of the lens of the the that 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 refreshed that, yes yeah yeah that that really brought the into focus mm-hmm. that message and the and and that and that the message of god as we have seen both from the beginning in in Israel supposed to bless all the world, but even now we've seen specifically the Lord talking about Assyria and Egypt as belonging to him and, you know, and how all the peoples are going to, all the nations are going to stream to Zion. The Lord's plan all along has been to bless all the nations. He was just planning to do it through Israel, you know? And that was still the plan. It was still the plan when Jesus came. You know, Jesus, if Jesus functions as Israel, he is fulfilling the exact plan that, that Jesus, that God made from the beginning to bless the entire world, to be a light on the hill for the Gentiles, you know? Is, is Jesus being the embodiment of Israel, is that different from uh, Jesus being the embodiment of the Messiah predicted by the prophets of Israel? 
That's a good question. I think these, I think these prophecies about the servant are seen as prophecies of the Messiah. They're messianic prophecies. So I think they're saying one in the same. Barb, you had a had a comment. Um, it's like when you were talking about what God had in mind all, all along. I think that, you know, because God had had and has the big picture. And we as humans tend to focus in on the details and the little thises and the thats, you know, just like the Jews made all these laws for themselves. And even now, uh, you know, even now we, with the hindsight and of Jesus, we still, I mean, look at all the different denominations and non-denominations that we have. And we still tend to, um, not focus on, you know, we t- still tend to not find the big picture. It's like, okay, well, we do it this way. So you, 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 you don't count. And I think that that's, you know, our human condition to do that. And um, I mean, we always talk about, well, the Jews just didn't get it. Well, we don't sometimes I don't think we get it either. <laughs> the way we treat Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and I think we get balled up in understanding all of this because we're not viewing it through this lens um, of the Old Testament prophecy. Renee, you had a comment. Okay, this may be totally too soon. (laughs) But when Jesus said, I am the way, he was talking about his actions, not his personhood. Is that right? It is certainly something to consider. It is, it is, I think that Jesus, like Jesus was trying to point Israel and all the rest of us to God. And that, and that's what he meant by saying, I am the way he's just saying it's over there, folks, (laughs) you know, come this way, right? Um, and, and, uh, what I think this perspective that the servant songs give us by understanding the servant songs were about Israel specifically named about Israel. And if we also believe that they are about the coming Messiah, which they say they are, there are the servant songs to come, this servant to come. Okay. And if we then believe that Jesus was that Messiah, then that whole idea of Jesus embodying God's purpose and bringing light to the Gentiles, to all the weird Gentiles, gives a little different perspective on the verses about Christians being and Gentiles being grafted in to Israel. Um, in the New Testament, there's still that root branch vine whole imagery happening. And it talks about Jesus being the vine. We are the branches, we being the people of Israel are the branches, and the Christians, the Gentiles get grafted in, you know. So we, I think, as Gentiles, 
do a little bit of more than a little bit of cultural appropriation <laughs> in how we interpret the New Testament and the lens through which we see, see Jesus and the role of Christians. What if we are simply the ones who are part of the nations streaming to Zion to worship? Marlene. Um, yeah, so that, that touches on some thoughts I was having. Um, it seems like a lot of churches and church leaders now are taking this, this understanding of Israel as the current political state of Israel and and you know this 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 full-throated support of everything that Israel does even the unjust things and the self-interested things and just saying yes well but they're the chosen people and you know God wants us to support Israel um that that has always felt misguided to me that the political entity of the state of Israel is not the Israel of the promise. Right. Right. I think those are good thoughts. Uh, I saw I think, um, Ellen with her hand up. I think uh, I, she was raising it for me. Cause I'm just thinking. Cause so, she, she's put the cursor over the microphone about 12 times. I'm like, just speak up. All right. So <laughs> it, help me understand. So this whole time we've been taught that the protagonist, is that the correct English word? The protagonist, the main actor. Uh Yep. Of this whole Bible, as Christians, we've been taught as Jesus. Even in in the Old Testament, he's the way we're pointing to Jesus. And in the New Testament, we're like, anyways. So you're saying that he really isn't the protagonist. The protagonist all along has been Israel. The protagonist of these stories. The protagonist of these stories has always been Israel, but Israel's role has been to point all of the nations to God. Jesus was God personified, right? That's what we as Christians believe. What I'm offering here that his persona, the role he played in history, in that moment, in fulfillment of these prophecies, was as the embodiment of Israel, which brings us kind of to the fourth question, which talked about, um, it, it says, remember these things, Jacob, for you, Israel, are my servant. So now we can understand how we can see Israel and Jesus together in this, right? I have made you, you are my servant, Israel, I will not forget you. I have swept away your offenses like a cloud, your sins like the morning mist. So clearly that's talking about Israel, right? The actual nation, real Israel, return to me for I have redeemed you. Sing for joy. I'm quoting from the New International Version. Sing for joy, you heavens, for the Lord has done this. Shout aloud, you earth beneath Burst into song, you mountains, you forests, and all your trees, for the Lord has redeemed Jacob. Redeeming meaning just completely transforming what was totally corrupt and making it into something new, 
making it into the fulfillment of the promise. The Lord displays his glory in Israel. And this is what the Lord says, your redeemer who formed you in the womb, I am the Lord, the maker of all things, who stretches out the heavens, who spreads out the earth by myself. So this is saying that the re your redeemer is God, the Lord, okay, who formed you, Israel, in his mind from the beginning. And we see as, as, as Christians, we believe in the Trinity, that God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit are one and are God, right, as the Trinity, okay? This just gives you a, I hope, a bigger and broader and deeper understanding, of what Jesus meant in his context, standing on the shoulders of these prophecies and how far we have twisted it in our Christian interpretations. I am not in any way attacking the divinity of Jesus, okay? There are people who don't believe it, people who do believe it. Um, that's not in view here, okay? In this class, we're taking that as a given, all right? I'm just saying there's more to the story than you might have been led to believe in Sunday school classes that focused only on the New Testament. And I think I heard Ross piping up back a minute ago. Ross, what did you have to say? I was just saying, you know, uh, and we've discussed this before uh, about the, the rebirth of Israel. Uh, yeah, create, uh, a nation state created by, man, you know, man, um, whether or not, you know, how legitimate is it? I think I heard something about that earlier and I, you know, I thought about that, and you know, um, just as uh, in the old days, uh, there was a lot of wickedness in Israel uh, attributed to the people. Um, you know, if you look at uh, Israel today, and you look at uh, like the Six Day War with the Arabs and so forth, uh, it, it seems apparent to me that uh the nation state was was meant to be because miracles happened it appeared uh to me but that doesn't mean that the people residing in the land are not the model <laughs> people that we should be referring to right Does that make sense yes that does and um i I think that at, we we have more prophecy to to take a look at we have more events that will happen um, that are going to bring this into a little bit sharper focus for us. Um, but I think my we're about to end of time. And But what I really wanted to do was break up some of our Christian certainty. You to did allow, that. <laughs> <laughs> to allow the spirit to move through these scriptures and speak to your heart. 
to allow you to see God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit in ways you might have shut them off before, um, to see the New Testament with new eyes. Um, so that's it. That's all I got for you today. Thank that you. That is guys. enough. <laughs> Love you much. Take care. Take care, guys. Bye. Uh-